0: everybody this is phil town
1: and this is danielle town
0: and we're here for the invested podcast where we are learning to invest like the best investors in the world do it where we're going after very high returns with very low risk which by the way the sec says is impossible and you just can't do that that's wrong on all levels and we're here with an incredible incredible person today that we're going to have a lot of fun talking with about this kind of stuff and more other kinds of stuff so why don't we introduce her
1: we're so lucky to have amanda steinberg with us today hi amanda
0: hi danielle hi how, how are
2: you both doing
1: we're doing great so amanda steinberg you guys is a financial expert and an entrepreneur so basically she knows everything there is to know about businesses and investing In 2009, she launched her website, which is called dailyworth.com, and it brings a fresh voice to personal finance. She also wrote a book called Worth It, Your Life, Your Money, Your Terms, which is a really personal book about investing. And I remember reading it when it came out, and I just loved it. Um, in In 2015, Forbes named her one of the 21 New American Money Masters, and she also got New York Times coverage for her digital investing service, Worth FM in that year. And then in 2016, Oprah, 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 selected her for the inaugural Super Soul 100 and Fast Company named her one of the most creative people in business. You've been a, pre- a computer programmer. You are the founder of Soapbox, a digital agency building web platforms. You have done so much, Amanda. We're I've been busy. You.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I can't wait to talk to you both.
1: So tell me about The Daily Worth. Is it um, sort of oriented towards women or is it more for everybody?
2: It's definitely oriented toward women because it actually, the, even though it's about money, the intention behind it wasn't specifically about personal finance, but really about looking around at all of my successful women friends who had big ambitions, big dreams for the world, but had a disconnect from money. I thought if women are going to rise, as we have seen very much in the last year in particular, then we have to also embrace and shift our relationship to money in order to really see how that transpires.
1: Totally. I mean, that's what I've been going through is a shift, a change, a a transformation of relationship to money. And I think mine has been different than that of a dude, frankly. Have you found that with people you've worked with?
2: Yeah, and it's, you know, we, we'll get into the nature versus nurture debate, which is a never-ending debate and very hard to prove since you can't isolate people before they're, you know, after they're born yeah. um, without deep social ramifications. <laughs> you know, when it comes to women and money, we are socialized very differently from men, even more than I ever imagined. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in kind of a bubble where I was told I could do whatever I want. It turns out that the gender roles we inherit, especially after we graduate from college and think about family, really separate the roles of who thinks about money and who doesn't. And for women to engage with money is, actually goes against the social grain quite significantly.
0: I mean, it's remarkable how few women are in the field of managing money. I mean, it's really extraordinary. I, don't, I can hardly think of anything, I mean, including, you know, computer science, including math professors, including anything where there's a big gender gap like the money management world is almost virtually entirely guys at at the, especially at the top levels. So what we talk nurture nature, is there some kind of, at that higher level, you, you watch sort of these people working with risk. Is there some kind of risk aversion difference do you think at all between men and women?
2: I personally believe that it is entirely nurture and not nature. Um, Because as we've discussed prior to this podcast, there's a Merrill Lynch study from 2015 that looks at how when women have the same education as men, they also demonstrate similar levels of risk. I really think it's just a far more entrenched socialization of gender roles than any of us are willing to or able to see because it's different from how that's changed and evolved over the last 30 years.
0: You know, there's, there's a sport that we're involved in down here um, in Georgia <clears throat> called three-day eventing that's an Olympic sport. And it was originally cavalry officers between Germany and France who were going to prove who's the bravest cavalry officer. back in 1900, and now it's this Olympic sport. And it wasn't until 1960s that women were able were allowed to compete because it involved you know macho bravery, danger. You could die. People died all the time. 2008, 12 international riders died in one year. Extremely dangerous sport where you're jumping a horse over these military fortifications for four miles and the horse is tired and you got to make these split second decisions. But an amazing thing happened it is the only sport in the Olympics where women compete head up with men, number one, and number two, they kick butt. And it is unbelievable how many women at the top level are gold medalists, world champions. Um, Mary King is as astounding Lucinda Green is in the Hall of Fame for winning more of these four-star events than anybody Um, I mean women have held their own in a sport which is all about risk all about macho all about danger not only hold their own I would I would think in a lot of ways it could be argued they're better so you know uh, to your point right
2: yeah these are these are very interesting times and just to give you a total counterpoint around financial services I'll give you two examples I was riding a train between, on Amtrak between New York City and Philly, and I sat next to the head of trust and estates of a very, very large global bank. And when I told him what I did for a living, he said, don't you just want to be taken care of? And uh,
1: <laughs> Did you just want to get up and kill him?
2: <laughs> I said, no, but my boyfriend does, and that, there's all sorts of new, I mean, it was, that was it. but I'll give you one more example. It's, I mean, it's, it just continues to underscore what I faced when I was raising venture capital. I've raised about 9 million so far for my businesses. Um, the, uh, it was common, you know, one VC said to me over coffee, he said, you know, women aren't interested in money. My wife just likes to spend my money. And there's an, there's an investment in keeping gender roles specific because for certain sectors of our society and certain people, it works uh, until it doesn't. And so uh, it, you know, it's, that's what is especially dominant in financial services, is this but, desire to keep things the way they are.
0: But there's, a, there's a really crazy irony to that, of course, and that is because guys tend to die earlier. The money lands in women's laps anyway. And so many people feel like, you know, they're not prepared, men and women. They're not prepared to really manage their own money.
1: But it's not even once husbands die. It's during the time that people are together. Women tend to control the family money.
0: They certainly do in my
2: house. Except the investments. That's where it's either delegated to the husband and or fully delegated to the advisor.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the latter is probably even more so, Very much so. I mean, we, we started talking about this, Amanda, because I put in our new book that I found this study that women investors tend to have a lower risk tolerance than men. And uh, it was from Fidelity. And I found this study because I was wondering why I seem to be so different from all the men that I knew and why all my girlfriends seem to be like me. And I started thinking like, is there some kind of like gender thing that's going on here? And I just looked it up and found that, oh, like somebody else corroborated this. I put it in the book. And then you and I talked about it, and you told me about this other study that shows that actually, that may be true, that one that shows women have a lower risk tolerance than men, but when you control for having the same financial education, then women and men are the same as far as risk tolerance. And I find that so exactly dovetails with my experience as well. Like, I think that's perfect. And I think it just tells us we've got to get up there. Like, it's not that men have such amazing financial education, by the way. We just have to get to like a bad level, <laughs> we have to get to like a mediocre level. And, and,
0: I, uh, and I mean, I have to
1: handle our own stuff. And then, and then the risk tolerance doesn't even become an issue
0: and i think also i would i would love to get into this with you amanda about risk tolerance right because the idea of investing has something to do apparently with risk tolerance and i would really challenge that i i think that that's i wouldn't oh, even what call that investing about, i what would say
1: talking about is risk of getting into the market risk of doing anything at all i think
0: so here's what i i was i wanted to ask you amanda it's like um What do you think about this idea that it's a complete wrong, it's a wrong view of investing to think that risk tolerance is required, that it's about risk and the tolerance of risk, and that is about investing. I I would argue... Wait,
1: wait, wait, let me say something about that, because I think what we're talking about here are two different things. There's the risk of getting into the market and investing at all and then there's the risk that people talk about in the market of like what kind of risk do you want to have and therefore we will decide what you buy that kind of thing
0: okay but isn't the first thing also something i mean the risk of getting in the market what does that mean
1: of like being in the stock market of, of deploying your funds at all what do you think amanda which what are these studies referring to is it more like the,
2: i think you know when risk
1: it risk or the like entering the market at all
2: Well, we'll we'll zoom out a bit. Um, So for years and years, Daily Worth sold advertising to many of the biggest brokerages um, around the country. And what we found when we were sending their advertisements through Daily Worth was that there was a big disconnect between how financial services saw women and how women uh, viewed money. There there was a disconnect. What I heard from the advertiser side, from the brokerage side, was women aren't interested in money. They're disengaged um, and they're not, uh, and they're risk averse. Really? And what I found on the female side on, when we would survey our our readers was they were very interested. They wanted to take risk. They just didn't understand it. And one of those big misconceptions is that if I'm afraid of losing all my money, risk is only seen as the downside, not the upside. They don't understand that it's really a question of variance as opposed to whether or not it's you know a speculation where you could lose all of your money versus investing as we know it which is managing risk so that you can optimize your returns with, while mitigating losses that's a concept that is unless you have a basic vocabulary or understanding of how the markets fluctuate makes no sense to you and you're just afraid
0: yeah and we're, we're finding ourselves sort of in a third sort of in a third world which is one that would argue that that, that concept is and this is going to be a little edgy i think but that concept isn't investing either, that that's also speculation. So the things that are, are the, the, the direction that Warren Buffett would suggest you take as an investor who isn't going to learn to invest, They're not, you're not going to devote uh, time to learning how Buffett does what he does, um, which is to try to buy $10 bills for $5, right? You're not going to spend the time to do that, to do the research, to be patient, to wait and so on then you must do uh, diversification type investing. You're gonna buy the broad market funds and diversify across a lot of things in order to reduce risk um, and to have a good long-term result. But that's not how Buffett invests at all. And he would argue, I think, that diversification is in fact um, only for those who are ignorant, that if you are a knowledgeable investor, you don't want to be taking those kinds of risks where you're, uh, you, it's conceivable that you would have the stock market drop 50% and take down every fund you have by 50%. It might be 10 years before it comes back. You don't have to take those kinds of risks. If you have knowledge, then you can go out and buy uh, with a lot of certainty. His word is you can buy with certainty, period. So how does that hit you? How do you, how do you think about that?
2: I think about it in, um, in, in the way I apply broad-sweeping generalizations to my work, because sometimes you have to when you're talking to millions of women at once, in that I've found from a, a pure interest standpoint, there's different categories of investors. There's the pilot, there's the co-pilot, and then there's the passenger. And it's, um, I have oftentimes spoken to each of those categories distinctly, and as opposed to trying to convince them to become something different, serving them where they are so Mm -hmm. perhaps for the passenger as long as they are young enough to wait out those market corrections um, index funds are the best solution for them because we're not going to convince them to be a co-pilot at least i haven't figured out how to do so not sure that's even my job Um, but uh you know for them it's really about how old they are and whether or not they can wait it out relative to their overall financial picture i think you're really speaking to the pilot um, mm-hmm. and maybe even the co-pilot, the co-pilot tends to really want always someone to hold their hand and that's men and women alike.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and the, the pilot.
2: Like
1: the pilot is somebody who makes the investing decisions regardless of what they are or- The pilot
2: is, is who comes to your seminars, I would imagine, the person who really wants to do the research, who really wants to, uh, who really wants to be an active investor, not a speculator, um, which, you know, really does take time and education.
0: It takes time and education and it, it takes a kind of a view of the world that says, uh, I think to drive that desire that says, if I do it the way everybody's telling me to do it, I'm not going to be okay financially. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So what would you advise somebody, let's say somebody who's 50 years old and has $50,000 and is able to save $6,000 a year and wants to retire? I mean, how do you, how do you help a person like that? And by the way, you built this amazing website, I think, kind of specifically for people like that.
2: It's it's the number one question I get asked. Um, I can tell you that that the number one question is, I'm 50 and I have no money saved for retirement. What do I do?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, I will, in some cases, send them in your direction. Um, I'm still a novice when it comes to the way you invest. Um, I've always been really focused on my income and maximizing my savings, um, however, I am very interested in moving in your direction um, once you know as an entrepreneur, my liquidity is slightly different than others but uh, but I'm excited to find more liquidity and and learn what it is you're teaching. Um, but uh, you know, I also think though it's a it's a policy question. I think it's I think it has as much to do with our um, our political our governance and how we Respect old people in this country as it is about an individual's capacity to create the returns that you teach. You know, I would, I would ask you, how many have you studied how many of those you work with who implement what you do are successful in, you know, 20, 30% returns um, versus, you know, there is an aptitude question. Um, and is, is everyone capable of doing this?
0: Oh, that's a, that's a really great question. What well, we have, of course, is anecdotal because we just hear back from people of how, how they're doing, and we don't hear back from people who aren't doing. Right. So you're right; it's aptitudal. And um, but people who are actively involved in investing with basically Buffett and Munger strategy seem to be doing very very well. I mean, we we it's all anecdotal. So you know we hear from people who do well, um, and we hear from people who. Started out, let's say, in 2008 when we first started teaching and then didn't apply what we taught them and then got burned and then came back and started doing it right. So I think it is, it's is—it's an added aptitude. If if you do it, I think you end up okay. the The main focus being the willingness to be very, very narrow in your approach to the market so that whatever aptitude you have, you narrow down to that aptitude. If you're a school teacher, narrow down to companies that are about teaching and then stay incredibly patient and wait for the inevitable five to 10 year market crash with, you know, we're averaging seven years for all history apparently uh, to a recession and your, your company will go on sale. And interestingly, if you do that, the rates of return are, are extraordinary if all you did is invest once every seven years, it's, it's really quite, I, you know,
2: I am, I, uh, prior to reading your book, I have, I've much more because of the, the size of the audience that I speak to, there's a lot more questions about net worth and fundamentals around cost of debt relative to prospective returns relative to simply having enough cash savings that you are able to function. Um, that's where most of this country is right now Um, but so I have not gone deep into your work but I can't wait to become a guinea pig for you over the next year or two um, Mm. and see uh, see what I'm able to accomplish because I'm sold you'll be right (laughs) there with me
1: Amanda what's that you'll be right there with me we can do it together
2: I can't wait and I'm with you on the social screen interest so optimizing for um, our transition into a more sustainable economy as a market opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what Amanda's talking about is the mission. It's finding companies that are doing things that you want to vote for with your money in the world. And Amanda got an early copy of our book because she's so wonderful. So I wanted to make sure she got one. And and so that's how she knows about it. So you guys check out Invested. I know I tell you about it all the time, but pre-order now. Um, And you'll get to see this concept of mission and how it's involved um, with the Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett principles of investing and how once you've, as you just said, chose great companies, then you also choose companies that are doing things that you want to support with your money.
0: Yeah, we find that there's a a huge social component here um, that we're basically abdicating responsibility for those votes that we have over to people who don't care. They don't see the world that way. I mean, Jim Kramer, I know from, from doing some stuff on CNBC and Jim tends to buy pieces of paper. He he doesn't really get behind what's the moral, uh, work that's going on with that company or the lack thereof or the anti moral work that sometimes goes on. And as a result, we end up with, um, I think 85% of the money in the stock market is from little guys, right? It's from, I mean, the California teachers pension fund is one of the largest investors in the world. And they're not voting that money according to the values of those teachers. They're just looking to get a return from people who are very oriented towards short-term returns. And I think one of the ways we can fix a lot of the problems in the world is to start making a moral judgment with our capital. Our money has, it has to go to things, We have to put our money where our mouth is, I think, Amanda. And if we're putting our money into broad diversified funds, the money is going to some, in some cases, to things that are just simply wrong from my point of view, right? And it's, but it's my point of view, so.
2: Yeah, or even to find those things that we think are right, um, which is a different way of screening for your investments and say, you know, when I go to the ballot to vote for my congressperson, I'm voting for a certain set of values. How do I apply those to my finances so that I am constructing the world that I want to live in, which works for more people, which means our economy thrives? There's a self-interest in investing in um, communal returns as well as personal returns, because then there's more of a marketplace for all of us to thrive in.
0: Oh, 100%. Absolutely.
2: It
1: creates creates a business economy in which companies that are not uh, living up to that standard cannot survive. And that's the economy I want to
0: live in. John Mackey talks uh, about, in his book, Conscious Capitalism, about these stakeholders in a company, which include, of course, the shareholders, the owners. That's us, or our mutual fund, or our index fund. But it also includes the employees as a stakeholder, the suppliers as a stakeholder, the environment, the community. Um, All of these elements are owners of a sort of each company that's in that community. And if the op, if the people who are operating that company and making the decisions are not are not aware that the of the impact in Flint, Michigan, of stripping the place of a plant, which is then going to get you a really nasty documentary, challenging what you're doing on the planet, which might mean you don't sell as many cars, which ultimately results in your bankruptcy, you might want to pay attention to this stuff. And I I, I think that it's really really vital that we understand 85% of the money in the market is being voted amorally. It's being voted by other people. And if we continue to allow people to do that, then we're going to continue having CEOs just blithely paying themselves $20 million a year for doing whatever they do because they've owned the board and they've captured the boards and the boards are not responding to ownership. They're responding to management incentives, you know? So this is the stuff that bugs us and, and, One of the real driving... How does does
1: that hit you, Amanda, as somebody who uh, has probably invested in those kinds of broadly diversified funds? Like, do you have, have you thought about that in the past? How do you, how have you dealt with it?
2: I've not only thought about it, I've pitched it as a book that I want to write to my publisher, and it was rejected as not being broad-based enough. So I'm waiting for it. But then the BlackRock news came out a few months ago, and I said, see, this is what I was trying to tell you on the phone the other day. Wasn't
1: exciting? Yeah.
2: And... but, you know, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still learning in this capacity as well because my knowledge of individual equities is still um, quite low relative to my mastery of personal finance and other capacities. Um, one fund that I'm really interested in right now is called Nia Impact Capital run by Kristen Hall. It's 43 equities um, uh, across all different um, asset classes. And she has selected them First and foremost, for the number of women they have in leadership positions, and then each equity not only has to meet certain financial criteria, but also social criteria, and it's as robust as it is in its returns, as it is in its social impact. You know, are we shift? Our our globe is shifting. Our resources are running out. The wealth inequality is increasing. Governments have to make changes. Governments are the greatest influencers of spending, um, which is impacting the corporate sector, and therefore. In recognizing that this shift is occurring, how do we both gain financially as well as creating a healthier world at the same time not being mutually exclusive in any case
0: so that's I, a book
2: yeah <laughs> that is a book, and i I don't know the answers to I'm still studying um and uh and part of uh you know the hypotheses i want to test
0: well i I'm just struck by a thought you you threw out there briefly a minute ago about if a woman is in her 50s or a man is in his 50s, he doesn't have any money, what do I do? That question, that's the number one question. And part of the answer was, we need a better, I think what you're pointing out was we need a better uh, safety net for people who are there, right? I mean, is that where kind of where you were going with that? Yes,
2: I mean, I think there's different ways we could structure things in the long term that wouldn't put the pressure on government. I just see that we are headed towards a train wreck of impoverished old people and that the private sector cannot solve that right now in the short term.
0: We are headed to a train wreck. I mean, the numbers are really horrible. We were, we were doing this analysis to say, okay, let's say you have, you're 45 years old right now and you have um, 20 years to retirement. You're going to be healthy. You're going to live to be 95. Uh, let's assume a 7% return. Uh, let's assume 3% inflation. Let's assume 5% returns in the retirement. These are all reason, pretty, Would you agree? Those are pretty reasonable. Yeah, completely. And you're you're starting right now with 50 grand. Okay, you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. You're going to need, I think, roughly 2.5 million dollars. That's assuming you're getting Social Security, and you've got a, and living a sixty thousand dollar lifestyle in current dollars. You're not going to get there. You're going to need 2.5 million dollars 20 years from now to be able to sustain that lifestyle through 90 years old you're going to last four or five years in retirement and then you're done. You're living and on social security.
1: That's at 7% per year. Yeah.
0: Right, that's which, at is high
1: per year. which is like a standard or average or decently good. So. I
2: hear 5%, uh, you know, even
0: worse. You plug 5% and, and that's brutal. Uh, what, what happens? And you'll see what, what I, I almost call financial pornography on TV, where these companies are putting out this idea that you can have this lovely retirement if only you'll put your money with whoever, right?
2: and they're charging you 3%.
0: <laughs> and they're charging you 3, right? Yep. And there's no way if you're working they never say what your starting point is, right? Oh, hey, you're starting with a million dollars. We're going to be good here. We're going to be fine. If you're starting with 50,000 and you're you're 50 years old, you're in trouble. And they don't tell you that.
2: You know, before that, before robo advisors came to be, you had you, you had to call Fidelity, you had to call Vanguard if you didn't qualify for a financial advisor and you had to have some knowledge of funds otherwise i still see it all the time friends of mine who come to me are like my money is not even growing i lost money this year and then i open it up and they're 24 years old in a bond income fund you know being charged two and a half percent which didn't even grow and they have and they just don't know why that was all that existed before robo advisors for this just getting started segment of the market
1: well i've never even heard of that what's a bond income fund
2: I will, I will send it to you after this.
1: <laughs> and so basically like your friends just called somebody at some bank.
2: Met someone at her gym. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: there you go. Yeah. Cause that would be the only way to figure it out. And then right. uh, ended up in this fund. I mean, honestly, that's, that's it until robo advisors came around. It's so true. And now that robo advisors are here, People, I think, have gone almost a little too far the other way. Like, it's an app on your phone that seems kind of like a game. Have you encountered that that much? Like, what do you think about that?
2: Well, what you're referring to is acorns and stash. And I think that's for people who want to get started with investing or they like the idea of saving more of their change toward investments. It's like the gateway drug of investing. It's the (laughs) easiest, most accessible way to become an investor. Yeah. Once you start to realize there's tax benefits to investing in your retirement account, then you start to look at the broader solutions outside of your 401k. That's when you have $100,000, $200,000 and you start to go, okay, I've, this is about more than pocket
0: change. So one of the things that struck me in what you just said is that um, financial advisors don't want your money if you have less than 250000
2: that's generous. It's more, more often 500 or a million. And when you look at the fees, you know, 1%, um, that's, it, it doesn't really warrant more than a couple of phone calls, uh, you know, to serve someone with less than a million dollars. It just doesn't pay for their time.
0: And that's how somebody just throws you into a bond fund. They're not going to spend any time trying to think it out. That might be the best, you know, to them, for them to get that bond fund for you. And they pop you in there and they're done. You're, you're done with your advisor. Is that actually what happens out there you think?
2: There are there are many different types of advisors and some advisors are absolutely 100% you know, like that. There are advisors who go above and beyond and really sit with you and talk with you um, and help you with more than just your investments but your overall net worth and personal finances. And then there's the really good ones who also serve um, in a relationship sense, helping you navigate the emotional aspects of that, but they're, they're less, um, I find less of those because the industry was built really on the broker model where it was really just about beating the market, and it hasn't evolved so much beyond that.
0: Okay, so Amanda, these these financial services firms that are doing financial advice, th- Really are not going to look seriously at you with under two hundred fifty thousand dollars to invest. So you got to pick a robo advisor. What would what would be your advice on how to choose one?
1: But wait, wait, wait. First question before that is, do you got to pick a robo advisor? Okay, good. We'll
0: jump in there.
2: Well, if you have less than two hundred fifty thousand and you want to get started and you want to see what the DIY tech experience of investing looks like then a robo-advisor is a great place to start because in many cases, it's $50 to get started, $100, $500 to get started. So it, there's a very low threshold, even if you also want a financial advisor. Um, and so the- Like that's the, the
1: minimum amount that they require in order to- They're
2: all different. Okay. Um, I just but didn't know yes. if you meant
1: you pay $500 or-
2: No, you actually pay in typically somewhere between a quarter of a percentage and- 70 uh and 75 percent of um of one percent of whatever you have invested on that platform yeah okay. for the year
0: so what what would how would i choose one what what would i be looking for to pick well i
2: will tell you there's probably i mean there's so many different ones but i'll give you some i'll give you some examples of different types and who might go look at those and why so if you really just want to get started and see what automated investing looks like you can download an app called acorns or stash if you are starting to get more serious and you want a robust robo-advisor that's been around, that has billions and billions under management, is l- unlikely to go anywhere, um, and you want the, the best in service, then you should start with um, betterment, wealth front, or personal capital. If you want um, to in, be socially screened as well, if you if you're interested in the social screening that we were talking about, I recommend starting with aspiration or swell, Um, and if you are women-oriented, I recommend that you begin with Elevest, who's doing great things in terms of really centering in on women's unique needs and preferences. Man, all right.
1: And all of these would then invest in a broadly diversified way for you, right?
2: You should check that out yourself. For example, um, I, I believe, I haven't checked this out lately, Betterment is a mix of Vanguard and iShares and REITs and other things of that nature. Um, Aspiration is a single mutual fund where the diversification all lives within that fund. So you want to look at what the holdings of that fund is.
0: Okay. And so we've got these, we've got these choices. And then the problem being that these are great choices, I think if you have money. So there's a, there's this little irony about this whole world, I think, that we got to talk about. These, are great for people who can't uh, access a professional advisor because there's some fantastic professional advisors out there, but they don't want to work with you unless you have half a million or a million dollars. And if you have that money going out and making five to 7% a year, 9% a year is going to be great because you already have a bunch of money and you're really just there to protect it and make sure it grows better than inflation. And you're all, everything's going to be rosy. But most of the people who are coming to our classes, they don't have that kind and they are looking to figure out how to have a retirement at all, and if they're under a quarter million dollars and they're going to Betterment or Wealthfront or Alabest, and they're getting five to seven percent, they're not going to get there, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So there's this irony that's built it's into the weird system.
1: Disconnect for me, where I'm like, that's yeah. Our
2: society is flash. in mass denial, you know. Uh, the way I talk about it in my book is that retirement is a made-up concept. It came about about 100 years ago when people just started living beyond their work years. And we have to remember that it's made up because it's also distinctly American. So I think what we're going to see, not only a change in how people approach their finances, but also in the way we think about retirement, where you're just going to see a lot more cross-generational living. We already do. And things that, you know, other, our, our governance, our government may or may not, um, based on uh, upcoming elections, change the way in which social security or other types of retirement um, benefits are distributed because they are going to have to do something at some point or it's going to be chaos. Um, And then, you know, people are working until they're older. That's the dark side is a lot of people, you know, most people will have to work until they die. And I often joke that, you know, you come to me so that you don't have to work until you die, because that's the majority of women who come to hear me because that's the position that they're in. So maybe you can help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a distinctly dark place to go um for a lot of people I, I was reading the uh about the the social security director in New Zealand was asked a question by a woman who was in her 50s and said I can't I just can't save enough money to have a good retirement what should I do And the head of New Zealand Social Security said, well, you just need to get a better job, something that pays more money.
2: (laughs) Yep. Or work nights and weekends or, you know, it's um, surrogacy, I hear, is a great business for women to get into. I was kidding. Uh, You got to keep it light. But, you know, hey, just consider this. This is, I mean, I think this is what's special about being an American is that um, you know, it's in times of crisis that we see great innovation. And as much as this seems dark now, it's because we're thinking in a very narrow way about how we'd structure retirement. So what we really need is a lot of creativity on behalf of entrepreneurs and politicians to create new solutions, as long as we s- stop thinking that retirement is gonna look the way it used to look because it's not, it's a totally different world. And, but just no one's really stepped forth and figured that out yet.
1: I think thinking about retirement differently is also a great way to help younger people. I had zero interest in getting into investing because I just thought of it as for retirement. And retirement was a very long way off and probably involved a golf course or something that I didn't really want to be on. And so to me, it was something I didn't really want to think about. And I think if we can chuck that idea out and think about investing and saving and financial planning as something that can benefit you in the near term as well as the far term, then it just becomes something like, okay, we're all just actually planning for our lives regardless of what category we put our lives in.
0: Yeah, and yeah. how about how about the idea that that benefits society as well when you start putting your money where your mouth is? And you think that combination of things could be I think super important. In other words, if we're out there voting our money for the Whole Foods of the world, we're going to change the world, right? Or we're voting for the Teslas of the world, or we're voting for the solar energies or the re- recyclable energies. You know, I mean, it's just voting for the things that you want in the world, but doing it with a brain, right? Doing it with an idea of what a good business looks like and what it looks like when it's available at a great price then you get the best of both worlds. You get a world that's based on moral values and you get a world that's creating a lot of wealth as a result of participating in those things that are performing great services in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be really interesting right now, given how fractured Americans are around gun control, to see what are the equities or the funds that are most pro-gun control and what are the ones that are most anti-gun control and what's the flip, it would be interesting to see if, The populace got to a point where we could see the fluctuation of those prices as an indication of where the we are on those issues
1: so here's where my mind goes with that because i'm such a newbie investor how would i figure that out like okay so let's say i'm super dad (laughs) no but really like like what i obviously i could look at gun companies what else would you look because you didn't say gun companies you said gun control which
2: i meant gun right anything related to Ammunition. I don't know. I mean that that, that's an awesome question. Um, what do you think Bill?
0: I think that if you vote your money and vote your values You can take a country a a company right off the board. You can take it right off the board
1: No, but I'm asking a specific question like for something like that where You know, it's not I don't know like how like what would I do really to go check it out How do you
2: find the, the publicly traded um Gun yeah, like, manufacturers? Like I, guess
1: I, I guess I guess I can answer my own question. So I would find, first of all, the gun manufacturers. This is if I'm like pro-gun control. I'd find the gun manufacturers. I'd find like maybe some security companies. I'd find the um,
2: ammunition companies.
1: Manufacturers. I guess mm-hmm. that's where I would go. So it would be like specifically like what's involved in this. And then I would go and I would either buy or sell those things.
0: Yeah, and you but you, you discover also the world is a complex place. It's one of the most right. wonderful things about... Investing is that it forces you into, um, out of your emotions and uh, about how you feel about things, into your mind about how you reason it out. So, for example, Glock makes probably the most popular pistol for gangbangers in the in the world, right? It's a relatively inexpensive, really highly functional pistol, and um, yet it also provides all the police departments with those pistols. It provides the military with those pistols, multiple places. So you find yourself in a, in a bit of a moral quandary, unless you want to disarm all those guys, right? Or you, you find you, Oh, now we need legislation that says that, you know, these are military only, right? I mean, you find yourself in a much more complicated world. And I think that's really important. I think that that's good for us. I think that as a result of that, if we just simply started voting our money where our values are, we would discover that our votes for politicians would be different. I mean, across the board, we'd be functioning different. And so Amanda, you were basically saying, you know, what, what would happen to these companies? And I'll tell you what would happen. It's real simple. If you don't have capital, you're gone. It's that simple. You don't need to legislate the, the exit of any particular industry or any particular company. You simply dry it up as capital. And one of the ironies of the 99 and 1% movement was that the 99%ers are sitting out here providing the capital to the 1%ers who they're protesting against. It's the 99%ers money. That's
1: Amanda, have you, that. have you had any of those like moral quandary situations with anything you've looked at for investing where you've said, oh, this is something that seemed like, it wasn't gonna be something I would support, but then there's actually new information that makes me rethink it.
2: Oh, always, everything lives in contradiction. You know, it's even the whole idea of locally sourced economies. Why are you strengthening your immediate neighborhood when there's far more poverty around the world? I think that it's all deeply interconnected. Um, you know, I mean, I could think about tobacco companies and the economies that would be crushed by not having tobacco companies. So I don't think any of this exists without contradiction. Um, and I also think that it's a, it really has to be, I'm, I'm more pro-regulation. Um, you know, I, I think it's something that has to ex- happen at the, at the capital markets level and the policy level at the same time. Um, but uh, I, I don't want to turn this into a big philosophical political debate. It's not, definitely not why people here are listening. Um, oh, we but, talk uh, about it all the time. <laughs> I, know, but I but I, I just, I, to answer your question, I, I don't think you'll ever find a a black and white situation is always full of gray.
1: I just think it's such an important thing to call out. I'm glad you said it, Dad, because it's something as investors we are constantly faced with. And each of us individually has to either abdicate and say, well, I'm just going to let the financial person deal with it, or I'm going to let the robo-advisor deal with it, and I'm not going to think about it too much. Or you take that responsibility back and you do your own voting, and that is oftentimes a lot more difficult.
0: It's, it gets really sticky. I mean, you have companies out there like Walmart who provide <clears throat> this incredibly valuable service of you know, $12 hammers that used to cost $50 or something. And people get a huge benefit of that who don't have a lot of money. They can buy clothing, food, uh, equipment at extraordinarily low prices. And then Walmart takes that single value of providing things at very low prices and squeezes the life out of the companies that provide those products and ultimately ships those jobs to a third world country. So how, where do you stand on all of those issues, right? Do you want Smithfield Foods to be putting hogs into coach seats for their entire life and jack them full of antibiotics so they stay alive in this insane environment um, and have the, the state of Nebraska pass a law that says if you go in there with a camera, we'll put you in jail. I mean, those are all, all those different things are being driven by just a single value. And as the owner of a business, I feel like if I own one share of a company, I own the whole company. That's my company. And I think about that for practical reason, because it makes me understand the business as if I'm an owner. But also, I think if I own the whole company, I own the karma of that company. I I personally reap what I'm sowing out there. And so I I find it that it's many people really want to duck it. They they don't want to get that deep in life and be involved that deeply on these decisions and are looking for somebody else to make those decisions for them so that we can just simply, you know, sit around and bitch about it. You know, and, you know whatever we don't like without thinking deeply about it. But Charlie Munger, who we love deeply for for figuring this stuff out, uh and Warren Buffett both argue that deep reading and broad reading as fundamental to any good investor that you do have to figure it out. You have a moral obligation to figure it out for you. So for example, Buffett loves Coca-Cola and I don't like Coca-Cola. I find Coca-Cola addicting. I think it's the base of childhood obesity and diabetes. And it's really arguably a really terribly bad company. Um, and yet Buffett argues that I think he said once when somebody challenged him on, he says he just loves Coca-Cola, he loves to drink six or eight of those a day. And he's been to Whole Foods and nobody's smiling at Whole Foods. So he's got a value set that's different than mine. And one of my problems with investing Do you have a
1: question for Amanda, yeah,
0: right here. There's a question in here. One of my problems with investing in socially active funds is that they may not match my values, right? They sort of have absolutely the sort of Green. I don't know. They sort of feel like they're they're oriented toward.
2: They're left wing. Liberal totally. politics. Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: And I live in Georgia, so. Yep.
2: yeah, <laughs> As my my friend Richard Rosso, an advisor in Texas, he's like, "Optimize me to oil, please." <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. I've got all my friends up in New York and in California, and they they're like, "What do you, you can't? I don't want to invest in any of those things. You know, I want to invest in socially conscious companies." But those companies, if you talk to them, would think they are socially conscious. Walmart, absolutely is socially conscious.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it goes back to what you were saying about teachers investing in what teachers know. And I think the type of for the type of investing you teach, which is not about fund selection but about equity selection, you, um, I'm I'm speaking about things. You know, I use the gun control debate because I have friends very divided on both sides of that equation. And it's not about necessarily doing the crunchy granola version of that, but you know, optimizing, simply connecting your own, um, the way you vote at the, I just think, it's, I really hope we get to live in a world where more people are voting with their investment dollars as much as they are voting at the polls, because then we are more collaboratively working together to think about what the whole picture looks like, because we think they're divided and they're not.
0: I love it. Absolutely. I love it. It's right on.
1: Um, so I think that's a good place to stop on on what, voting with our money, which is so important. And I can't believe we got Amanda to agree to it. So this is so exciting.
0: <laughs> I believe we got her to agree to it because she already agrees to it and recognizes that. And a lot of what we're talking about here with her is that, you know, not everything is for everybody. And there's this all these different layers. And I love your idea of passenger, co-pilot, pilot. I mean, that's dead on the money. And then you just have to figure out where do you fit in that and, where, and what are the proper investments for you in that world, uh, how you choose. So, Amanda, thank you very much for being here.
2: My you, pleasure. I can't wait to learn more about your work and uh, get 30% returns. Can't wait.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we wish that for you. Absolutely. Hey, you. I wish that for me. Right. Um, <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, fantastic. So with that, Danielle, it's not enough.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And thanks everybody for listening.
0: All right, time to go play, see ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to InvestedPodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day Transformational Investing Workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.